With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 191 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we look at a story from the heart of the City of London. A story of an investment banker, greed, and as always, the personal story behind the screeching headlines. It is, I think, a tale that poses as many questions as it answers. Firstly, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Rebecca Gosling, Paul Goney, Rachel Adams and Steve Buckley. Your support is so much appreciated, thank you. And yesterday I released the most recent bonus episode. Please do take a listen, it's a real personal one to me, and let me know your thoughts. Let's quickly set some context for today's story, starting with the music we were listening to. At number one in the UK was Pixie Lot with All About Tonight. In the US it was Maroon 5 with Christina Aguilera with Moves Like Jagger. And in the Australian album charts, top of the pile was Adele with 21. And in the news this month, Jamaican legend Usain Bolt ran a season's best time to win the 200 metres at the World Athletics Championships in South Korea. There were more signs that we were actually in the 21st century as the United States ended its don't ask, don't tell policy, allowing gay men and women to serve openly for the first time. In the US, the Fixed Term Parliament Act was passed, requiring general elections to to take place at fixed five-year intervals, starting with the 7th of May 2015, removing the prerogative of Prime Ministers to select a date. That worked well, didn't it? In Neath, South Wales, four miners lost their lives in the Geyson Colliery mining accident. An actor, Andy Whitfield, died aged just 39. I highly recommend the Netflix documentary Be Here Now, The Andy Whitfield Story, which follows Andy and his family as they go through the nightmare of his treatment for cancer. And in UK true crime news, Bernard Hogan Howe was named as the new commissioner of London's Metropolitan Police. Did you get the month and the year? It was, of course, September 2011. The Union Bank of Switzerland, or UBS, can trace its history to 1854 when six private banks based in Basel pulled their resources to underwrite local and increasingly broader European business. A whole series of mergers happened with other banks and financial organisations over the years, but UBS, the three letters, symbolised the bank's aims of confidence, security and discretion, which appeared to represent everything about what, those of us of a certain age, always thought Swiss banking was all about. But as the world of banking changed from a more staid business, into a way of making money in all sorts of markets, making loads of people very rich in the process, of course, UBS changed too. Its shareholders demanded their growth in profits 
and this often involved buying other financial institutions. If we just look at the period between 1986 and 1988, it bought Swiss Bank, which included Greenwich Capital, Phillips and Drew, Ackroyd and Smithers, Mullins and Co, SG Warburg, and Payne Weber Rowe and Pittman. And with this purchase came exposure to all kinds of markets and trading in every derivative imaginable, many of which were, frankly, not understood fully by those close to the action, let alone more senior managers in the bank. Larry Summers, the Treasury Secretary in the Clinton administration, noted the change in the finance industry since the 1970s, saying, It was transformed from a field that was dominated by people who were good at meeting clients at the 19th hole, to people who were good at solving difficult mathematical problems that were involved in pricing derivative securities. It was, you could argue, inevitable that the basics of control over its activities suffered. And traders, again you could argue, became the main players at these organisations. The glamour people, earning the big bonuses, encouraged no doubt by their portrayal in Hollywood. But in a world where the only thing that mattered was money, and you were judged purely on the size of your bonus, traders were faced with the increasing pressure to take more risks to make higher profits. Like other banks, this was encouraged by trading managers, whose huge bonuses depended on ever-increasing profits. But then in 2008, UBS's involvement in subprime and other lending, leading to the huge financial crash, was massive as the bank incurred losses of over £50 billion. The bank made the largest loss in Swiss corporate history in 2008. Surely this would be a turning point. This is what we were told by the governments who bailed out the banks and also the senior bankers who clung to their jobs. But of course, the reality is that it piled the pressure further on the traders to roll the dice even further and even harder to make the profits the banks needed to pay off their debts. One of the thousands of bankers working for UBS at the time of the financial crisis in 2008 was Kweku Adeboli. Born in Ghana in 1980, his dad worked for the UN, which meant he was moving between countries often as he was growing up, living in, among other places, Syria and Israel. Due to this, his parents thought it would be good to provide him with some more stability on his education. So at 12, he was sent to Ackworth Boarding School in Yorkshire. He enjoyed it there, being strong academically and in sport, going on to become head boy. The head teacher at the time described him as, I quote, an outstanding student who was able academically, was a good sportsman and was a natural leader who was widely respected by students and staff. Hmm, maybe not quite how our schools would describe us, I think. From there, he went to the University of Nottingham to study computer science and management. He got the most again out of his time at university enjoying time with a wide circle of friends and being very active in the students' union. In the same way as at school, Kweki was very much into being part of a community and using his undoubted ability to help others feel part of that community too. He later said, I was very much a community guy. Funnily enough, that's the way I was brought up. I think part of the reason I did so well at Ackworth 
is that that school's values were about community being above the individual. And that's what I tried to carry on into my job at UBS. But at this stage, banking was not something he'd ever seriously considered. It was consulting that really interested him as a career. But in 2002, the dot-com bubble had burst and jobs were thin on the ground. He had done an internship at UBS during his final year at university just to get some decent experience for his CV. But he'd enjoyed working with his colleagues at the bank and so when he was offered a job, he took it. But when he began, it wasn't the glamour of trading. He was near the bottom of the ladder in the operations team, working on settlements. Hard work, but for banking, not very well paid at all, and none of the big bonuses. But his ability was clear and he was spotted, and he managed to become a trader in London in January 2006. He moved to the Exchange Traded Fund and Index Desk, the Delta One Desk, in September that year. With the increase in salary, his personal life picked up, he moved from a shared house in their less salubrious London fields to a loft in trendy Shoreditch. By 2008, he was an associate director and in 2010 was promoted to director. By now, he was earning nearly 200k, including bonuses, a long way from his 30k opening salary at the bank. And by 2011, just a year later, he was earning a combined salary and bonus of £360,000, which was more than 10 times his 2003 starting salary. Away from the office, he enjoyed himself. He liked travel, photography and fine wine. His neighbours or those that knew him spoke of a courteous, charming man, albeit one occasionally prone to throwing loud parties. But then again, he was young, he was well off, he was enjoying himself. And in the office, he was known as a dedicated trader who put in the long hours, was good at his job, and he was there to help other people who were struggling. Again, that sense of community we saw throughout his life. But the job itself was tough, really tough, and he had to get on top of it straight away with very little guidance and under severe pressure to make some serious money. He was one of four traders on this desk, which traded on behalf of both clients and the bank. But this was a very small team in the area compared with other similar sized banks. For example, the same team at Morgan Stanley was 11 strong. This heaped the pressure even further on the team at UBS. He later described it as follows and I quote, If you can imagine a US $50 billion book with 4,000 moving parts, the profit and loss accounting of the book was very volatile. One day you'd come in and you'd made US 5 million and you don't know why. Another day you'd come in and you'd lost the same amount and again, you don't know why. He talked of having to develop ways to deal with this volatility, especially as he was under no illusion that the performance of his desk was key to the bank's strategy of remaining relevant to the equities world after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. But by May 2011, despite being seen as successful by his peers and the go-to guy who would do all he could to help others who were struggling. A number of his trades were going wrong. He was losing money and the pressure was getting to him and whatever he did seemed to be wrong. By July, he anticipated a further sell-off in the market, but his colleagues predicted a rebound. Doubting himself, 
he flipped his position, but then the market dropped. So he flipped back again, and this time the market rose. It seemed that nothing he did was working anymore. Speaking to a reporter at the Financial Times later, and this, like all my sources, is referenced in the show notes, he said, There's only so long you can go sleeping three broken hours a night. I probably wouldn't have ended up losing control in the way that I did. I would have recognised a much earlier point that, okay, we've lost X amount at this point, and there's probably still this much downside to go. Let me think about it rationally, flip my positions back again, but I couldn't do that. There was no energy left. And you end up going into autopilot when you're tired. And of course, autopilot means that you make mistakes. You don't recognise warning signs when they're all around you. And it snowballs from there. And snowball it did. By now he was breaking the rules of the bank, hiding the fact that he was going above the set risk limits by booking non-existent trades as hedges. So if he held a $100 million position, UBS thought he'd hedged another trade, so if there were losses, they wouldn't be as severe. But with no hedging, it meant that if he got the market wrong, his losses would accelerate rapidly. And that's what happened. He was helped by using the skills he learnt during his time in the UBS back office, where he entered false information into UBS's computer systems to conceal the enormous risks he was taking. In many cases, he extended the time in which some trades would complete to buy him time to make up any losses, along with, as we've said, not hedging his positions. And seeing no way out, except through further trading, he panicked and doubled down on his positions, just as many gamblers do, in a desperate attempt to win it all back. He was down $300 million in mid-July, but was back to level by the 25th. But then there was a crucial moment on the 5th of August, when he once again badly misread the market. Credit rating agency Standard & Poor downgraded US debt, which sparked a market sell-off. But Kweku held the opposite position, and by the 11th of August, the game really was up, as his loss was at a whopping US dollars. He even posted on Facebook, we need a miracle, as he desperately tried to retrieve the situation, but it was no good and their losses continued to accelerate. As well as gambling UBS's money, he was also making huge losses personally. He traded on a personal level through two spread betting accounts, held with IG Index and City Index Limited, where he lost about £123,000 trading with his IG account, and made just about £18,000 on his City Index investments. By this stage, his current account was in a mess. It was more than £3,500 overdrawn and he'd been using payday loan companies such as Moneybox and the much-missed Wonga. He knew this couldn't continue and the end had to come shortly. By mid-September, the losses were so bad that the compliance department wanted to know what was going on and a two-minute phone call precipitated the end. When a very quiet Kweku was pressed by a UBS accountant to explain strange entries on his trading record, he said, I'll come back to you in a few minutes. Instead, he called the other traders on the desk to the nearby all-bar one, as they'd done so many times before. But this time it was different. 
The other drinkers in the bar would have been blissfully unaware of what was going on at the table as he laid out to his colleagues the reality of his position. He told them he needed to stop trading as he was burnt out and said that he would take all the blame to protect the others. He didn't go back to work after that, but back to his flat, where he sent an email to the bank saying everything he had done. He wrote, I have now left the office for the sake of discretion. I will need to come back in to discuss the positions and explain face to face, but for reasons that are obvious, I did not think it wise to stay on the desk this afternoon. He said it had been his girlfriend who had given him the strength to admit what he had done, saying, you can't keep fighting this battle that you are clearly not winning. He ended by saying, I take full responsibility for my actions and the shitstorm that will now ensue. I'm deeply sorry to have left this mess for everyone and to have put my bank and my colleagues at risk. Then he went back to UBS where he was taken to the seventh floor for what would turn out to be a very long evening. By midnight, there were eight UBS advisors quizzing him on just what he had done and how, while meanwhile his girlfriend was texting him, asking if he was coming home and she'd made dinner. He didn't think this would go beyond losing his job, but by 1.30am, the banker called the police. He was taken away and held at Bishopsgate Police Station for the next two nights, before on the Friday afternoon being driven to the City of London Magistrates Court to be charged with fraud and false accounting. The next nine months ahead of his trial were spent in Wandsworth Prison in south-west London. It was such a contrast to his light and airy Shoreditch loft apartment as he had to spend 23 hours a day locked up in a small cell sharing a toilet with another prisoner. At his trial, the jury heard that his trades had cost the bank £1.3 billion and wiped off £2.7 billion from its share price. These were the largest unauthorised trading losses in British history. The CFO testified that more than 500 jobs at UBS went and the bonus pool in its investment bank was cut by about 60% due to this loss. It was estimated that 19 people directly lost their jobs. And not long afterwards, the UBS CEO, Oswald Grubel, resigned, as did the bank's co-heads of global equities. Kweku didn't deny in court what he had done, but he made it clear that everything he did was not for personal gain, but to make UBS money, and the bank effectively let him do what he wanted, as they wanted the millions that he generated. During the trial, it was shown that this unauthorised trading wasn't an isolated case, and that UBS had uncovered at least three other separate instances. But like other similar cases, such as Tom Hayes, who also went to university in Nottingham, he went at UBS, was sent to prison for manipulating the LIBOR rate, the prosecution placed all the blame on the one man, the bad apple. Kweku's friends certainly believed that others knew very clearly what was happening and that they too should have faced the jury. In the dock, he said everything he had done was aimed at benefiting the bank, where he viewed his colleagues as a family and told how he'd lost control in the maelstrom of the financial crisis and was doing well until he changed from a conservative, bearish position to an aggressive, bullish stance under pressure from senior managers. He told the jury the staff were encouraged to take risks until they got, I quote, a slap on the back of the wrist. He specifically denied again being motivated by personal gain 
in the form of a bonus. And his was a relatively small one at 250k, although of course a life-changing sum for many of us. But the lead barrister, with the eyes of the financial world on her, called him a master fraudster, deliberately and systematically deceiving and defrauding the bank which was employing him. She was brutal with him at Southwark Crown Court, as the jury heard that he was a gamble or two away from destroying Switzerland's largest bank, and that he lost the money in unprotected, unhedged, incautious and reckless trades, the jury was told. In the end, Kweku was jailed for seven years after being found guilty of two counts of fraud. He was cleared of four charges of false accounting. In his sentencing remarks, the judge said, Whatever the verdict of the jury, you would forever have been known as a man responsible for the largest trading loss in British banking history. Your fall from grace as a result of these convictions is spectacular. The fact is, you are profoundly unselfconscious of your own failings. There is a strong streak of the gambler in you. You are arrogant to think that the bank's rules for traders did not apply to you. And after the verdict, the faceless person from the CPS said, Behind all the technical financial jargon in this case, the question for the jury was whether Kweku had acted dishonestly in causing a loss to the bank. He did so by breaking the rules, covering up and lying. In any business context, his actions amounted to fraud, pure and simple. The amount of money involved was staggering, impacting hugely on the bank, but also on their employees, shareholders and investors. This was not a victimless crime. At the heart of any complex fraud is a simple notion of dishonesty, which is something that we can all understand. Let me give you one very quick quote from one of the detectives involved. He said, He was the star. He believed he would reach the height at UBS. He's one of the most accomplished fraudsters I've seen in my time in the force. This is not someone who made a mistake. This is someone who has chosen the path he has gone down. Kweku's dad, John, retired now, told a newspaper in Ghana that he was heartbroken at what had happened to his son, having brought up his children to be God-fearing and to appreciate decency. Kweku was taken to the Verne Prison, an old army base in Weymouth. He told the FT about his routine there as he tried his best to stay positive. At 5am he'd watch the news and write letters. At 7.45 he'd call his girlfriend to say good morning before she went to work and then he would go to the gym at 8am for an hour. And after work he worked as an equalities rep in the prison's diversity centre and after having his lunch he would head to the library to read the papers. And whilst he spent time in prison he learnt to play the guitar and sang on Saturdays in the church's choir. After this prison he was moved to HMP Ford and HMP Maidstone before his release in June 2015. As he was a citizen of Ghana and not a British citizen, despite having lived in the UK since 1991, he was subject to the general deportation policy of the Home Office for foreign nationals who've been convicted and sentenced to more than four years of imprisonment. He protested strongly, but despite that, on the 14th of November 2018, Kweku was deported to Ghana, where he remains today. What I can make out, he carries out speaking engagements, he teaches, 
and is involved in a group called the Afro Champions Initiative that aims to support the development of African multinationals. He also works on his dad's mango farm. In a recent interview, he said, I was the guy that they would send to universities around the country to do the milk round stuff. Basically, convince students to apply for jobs there. I'll be the one to say, come work for us, it's a great place, we're changing the world. And I truly believed it. So when I was convicted, I was broken. And when I was deported, I was even more broken. And he believes many more financial scandals like his will happen as the industry is moving to the point where we can no longer just say, well, there are lots and lots of bad apples. We're having to admit that the barrel, the barrel maker and the apples within, basically everyone, are involved in a process of increasing complexity. And bad things happen not because we're bad people, but because it's getting harder to do what we're being asked to do and so much more manipulation is deployed to achieve it. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Kweku Adiboli joins a list of so-called rogue traders we've all heard of and have often been glamorised. Maybe Nick Leeson is the most infamous of these, having racked up over £800 million in losses, which led directly to the collapse of Bearings Bank. Or maybe it's Harry Hubler, who lost $9 billion in one trade for Morgan Stanley, the largest single loss in history. Do you feel sorry for Kweku? Was he doing his best and manipulated by the corporate machine? Or was he a greedy trader who has now manipulated the narrative to make himself look like the person wronged. Either way, along with others, he certainly paid a heavy price for what he did wrong, and he admitted doing wrong. But my overriding feeling is that I can't help wondering if some of those with direct responsibility for him at UBS should have been standing in the dock with him at Southwark Crown Court. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. If you'd like more episodes around financial crime, please do let me know. To discuss this story or any other aspects of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group. And to support the show and listen to over 40 bonus episodes, access loads of free content, and to help me keep producing this free content weekly and make yourself a better person in the process, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. Okay, so that's all for me for today. Thank you so much for listening. Why don't you just relax and take it easy as the mighty Leeds United cruise towards promotion? After all, what could possibly go wrong? And most importantly, despite all the others, please do stay classy out there. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.